0: So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money, episode 1373, how organizations can address the racial wealth gap.
1: You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Just buying a home starts to lead to closing the racial wealth gap. Today, we don't offer products that allow people to buy a home. And so my team is focused on what are these product gaps that are out there that we can offer to customers that actually help them close the racial wealth gap and get to better financial wellness. Uh, Another critical thing for us is thinking about marketing and how we show up in the community and meeting people where they are. Right. And so... What we do today is we put black faces in white spaces. That's what our marketing looks like. And this is not, I'm not trying to throw my colleagues under the bus, but that's what marketing looks and feels like today in the financial services industry.
0: Welcome to So Money, everybody. You just heard from Jamal Stockton. He's head of customer inclusion at Fidelity Investments, and he was speaking very candidly about how he and his colleagues are working to close the racial wealth gap. His interview is actually part of a panel that I moderated last month in New York for an event called Disruptive Discourse. It was a, an event full of panels, talks, and discussions around workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was run by the great team at Of Color, a financial wellness platform. And today, I'm happy to say I'm gonna take you behind the scenes and share that entire panel, which was called How Organizations Can Address the Racial Wealth Gap. Our panel included Jamal Stockton from Fidelity Investments, as well as Shana Harris, Vice President of Inclusive Solutions and Head of Social Responsibility at Prudential Financial, and Joanna smith Romani, Managing Director at the Aspen Institute financial security program. We talk about how companies are thinking about social responsibility, the work that is yet to be performed. And this was interesting. What if employers refuse to partner with health insurers and instead demand that we reimagine the way benefits are made accessible and affordable? Imagine a world where you didn't need to have a full-time job to have the best access to healthcare benefits. That and much more in our discussion. Here we go. This first question is really for all panelists. I wanted to just level set as we kick it off and we understand that companies are recognize that the racial wealth gap is important and we also know that companies can do a lot to move the needle politically we've already seen it in other realms whether it's anti-gun violence or lgbtq rights when it comes to the racial wealth gap what role can organizations play in elevating that issue in the public discourse.
2: Well, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Shanae Harris, and I'm really happy to be here. to so, to talk about this, I think, really important issue, because I do think that there's a lot more that companies can do. And a lot of times, they're not clear on what to do often. But just to share a little about Prudential, we're headquartered in Newark, New Jersey, which is a majority-minority city. And in many ways, I think us being headquartered in a place that reminds you every day of the issues of inequity really helped to shape how we think about social responsibility as a company. We have been a company that has been very steeped in really creating and looking um, for opportunities to create economic pathways for underserved populations. And we do that through national work, particularly really focusing on how do you create innovation and really looking at strategies that connect quality employment and wealth-building strategies and really integrating those together. And also, we do it through being an anchor institution in Newark, New Jersey, right, and really looking at what does it mean to drive inclusive economic growth. But when we talk about kind of the issue of policy, um, I think it is that collaboration, that integration, that partnership that really allows corporations to I think, leverage their strengths, but work alongside others that can create that magnifying impact. And I'll give you an example of some work that we did years ago. So um, we have a great, you know, one of the great things about corporations is we have lots of Functions that that have great capabilities and in our, our communications functions, we put together this series really focused on, you know, raising issues about financial security for different diversity groups. So we had a very successful series um, that we produced years ago, really focused on Hispanic or Latino financial security. And you know, got a lot of great um, feedback about the data points and the research and the insights that were highlighted there. Um, but some of the critique was: well, you raised all these issues, now what? That became an opportunity for us. So we actually um, had a longtime partner, UNIDOS US, one of the largest um, civil rights organizations for the Latino community. And, and had worked with them, but wanted to deepen that partnership. So we said, hey, we did this great cutting edge report. Um, it raised a lot of issues and gaps. Is there a way for us to partner with you so you can take those further? How do we help you develop a policy agenda that helps to take some of those issues that are raised and say, okay, we're working on that. We're building coalitions with others. I like that, bringing policy and practice together. Uh, Joanna, did you want to add to that?
3: Well, I thought, Shana, I might talk about our partnership I'm between sorry. Aspen and Prudential. <laughs> oh, that's coming. But I won't be hurt <laughs> because Unitas is such an amazing organization. But in all seriousness, I mean, so Aspen is in the business of kind of knowledge and networks and ideas, but the most important part are people and leadership and trying to ensure, you know, consistent new generations of corporate leaders, government leaders, community leaders, you know, doing the hard work to leave legacy, right? And to create the world they want to see. And so when I, I would have answered similarly, similarly to Shanae. So what I'll layer onto that is what we really need is actually, especially corporate leaders to be honest about what they're experiencing, trying to do the hard work internally around inclusion, around racial wealth gap, around gender gap, you know, around all the things that they are both kind of responsible for keeping happening in the country and can have a really big role in changing in our country, they're doing so many things quiet. And they and it matters that they're sharing with their colleagues, with other folks that they're doing them. Um, we're just not actually being super duper honest about it. And, and the second thing I'll say that I do think Prudential and others who are out there both funding good work and trying to figure out good work internally is that they're including their business lines and doing that quite clearly because you can't just sort of fund the good work in the world and let it happen in Newark around you. You need to fund the good work and say, so then actually let me be reflective about what I have to do as a business to incorporate and integrate those learnings and lessons into how we operate as a corporation, as a leader in the country or a global leader, depending on the corporation. Um, So those are kind of the kinds of leadership we need to see. Public engagement, being honest, this is really hard work. It matters that the advocates are out there marching in the street. We're doing our best and here's how. And not just like funding those of us like Aspen and Onidos to do what we do best, but to say, okay, they're telling us this and what is our responsibility in this country to make those changes based on what they're telling us is true and real.
0: Then the next question, Joanna, for you, sticking with your thoughts here, um, obviously pay equity is important, but in the context of a world where we may see Roe v. Wade overturned, for example, where there are societal issues that are Derivatively, like financial issues, right? If you are telling a family that they don't know, they cannot family plan, for example, this is going to, we know, be more problematic for women of color and minorities, uh, again, in this context of Roe v. Wade being overturned. Just an example of how maybe now there is a role for companies to step in and be advocates, not just for pay equity, but other issues that affect pay equity. What do you think about that? And what do you see happening? I think this is a, a a difficult situation for companies that want to not be seen as political. But
3: yeah, I mean, it's sort of hilarious because, um, when you have companies coming out politically, especially around voting rights and other places where they've been growing in the last several years, importantly. And again, um, Responsibly, like that is their—that is actually their their responsibility in our country. Um, then you have all kinds of elected officials saying you should stay out of politics, but like quietly let me take your checks. I mean, it's right. just like okay, right? They actually get to be part of politics. In fact, Aspen was founded after World War II, specifically around corporate leadership coming together, saying like, "How the hell did we let this happen in our world?" And we actually have to be more engaged and more responsible. I think some companies have actually come out. Maybe not actively saying, don't overturn Roe v. Wade, but saying it is still important to us that you get the healthcare and choice and economic independence that you deserve as women or as potential fathers, you know, in this country. And so we will pay for you to go to other states to do what you like. We will provide additional financial benefits so that Joanna, who earns more, can easily travel to Maryland, where I actually live and where it would all be protected because of state laws and do what she needs to do. But Shanae, who earns less, bad example. I suspect Shanae earns more than me. But Shanae, who who earns less um, and as a black woman has less access to healthcare and all kinds of like real societal problems, system problems, can't get it. So there's important things happening there. But there's actually really good examples or or improving examples of corporate leadership around voting rights in this country Mm -hmm. um, as an adjacent issue, right? Right. right? Like important adjacent economic issue. I'm not just, I stand you know, my company doesn't stand to benefit or my position in this country as a high net worth person will fall down if democracy crumbles. And so I need to get involved in that too. Thank you.
0: Jamal, would love your perspective internally at Fidelity since before summer of 2020 till now. So summer of 2020 was a pivotal moment for our country, the death of George Floyd. Would love for you to talk a little bit about where Fidelity has traversed since then in terms of its policy, in terms of the way it's thinking, and trying to close the racial wealth gap.
1: So we hired about 40 associates uh, that focus now on diversity and inclusion for our customers. So we hired people into our marketing organization that focus on customer inclusion. We hired research analysts that think about research and insights and behavioral science around our customers. Um, We hired a whole host of folks that think about thought leadership and research so we better understand who our customers are. Right. So the very first thing is, what do our customers need? what are they looking for not what it is that we are already providing so this is going back to makata's point i think makata's point um around talking about 529 accounts and retirement accounts for people that have no disposable income that doesn't make sense right so what our customers need to do and what they're focused on is hey i need to fix my credit i want to buy a car i'm trying to buy my first home just buying a home starts to lead to closing the racial wealth gap Today, we don't offer products that allow people to buy a home. And so my team is focused on what are these product gaps that are out there that we can offer to customers that actually help them close the racial wealth gap and get to better financial wellness. So that's where we start. Uh, Another critical thing for us is thinking about marketing and how we show up in the community and meeting people where they are. right? And so... What we do today is we put black faces in white spaces. That's what our marketing looks like. And this is not I'm not trying to throw my colleagues under the bus, but that's what marketing looks and feels like today in the financial services industry. Like when I see marketing and what I want to see is people at a street festival, like doing what people normally do in their daily lives. Like don't put people retiring on a vineyard. Like that's not a realistic (laughs) expectation, right? Uh, And that's what the financial services industry has been focusing on is these unrealistic expectations of what, you know, people's uh, end of life looks like for them or that last phase in their life looks like when that's not actually what people care about. So we're heavily focused on better understanding culture, right? We're heavily focused on life events, right, in different communities. So if we're talking about the Latino community, for instance, let's talk about a quinceaera. That people want to save for that life event, and today we don't talk about it. Our associates don't understand it because majority of the people that work at Fidelity are still predominantly white, so they're not familiar with these life events. They're not familiar with other people's culture, and that's a place that we need to begin to start.
0: Excellent. What are some examples, like the, the products, services that have actually come out of this, this research and this new lens through which you're looking at customers?
1: Yeah. So we haven't made strides in creating new products. So we have product ideas. So one product idea might be, again, saving for a home, right? Mm -hmm. So a down payment builder. Um, But that also requires legislation and advocacy, right? Because what you want to do is be able to save for a home with pre-tax dollars. Mm -hmm. Right. And not have to worry about saving for it after the fact, but that requires legislation and at the policy level. So that's something that we might advocate for in the future. Uh, Another thing that we need to think about oftentimes when people are immigrating, they had the opportunity to come to the United States, but their families are still home. Right. Right. And so remittance becomes a big thing. But people are getting, if you're using Western Union, you're paying high fees to send money home. So, is there a product out there that we can allow people to invest and then maybe send just the the revenue, right, or the profit from their investments home to their home country? Like, is that an idea that we could, you know, produce a product and offer that benefit to people so they're not just sending cash home and then paying the fees? Yes. Uh, so those are the types of products and services that we're thinking about because we're listening to what our customers' needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that we could potentially offer in the future? We're not doing it yet today, but these are some of the ideas that we're thinking about.
0: Mm-hmm. We could probably spend a whole hour talking about the underbanked and the unbanked and sort of the myths there about. People often assume that banks don't want to work with me, you know, and and that's not always the case. It's just that that communication's not there, the accessibility's not there. Um, Shanae, let's talk about racial. Equity investments. I'm curious about this. Firstly, just how would you characterize racial equity investments from the perspective of a, co- of a company? Like, where are they putting this money that can actually make an impact? Philanthropy, organizations within the community, and how that, if that affects, positively affects financial health at the end of the day for workers. Um, so, one, what is it? Where can we see that? Where does this show up? And does this actually have a, a positive impact?
2: I think, one, companies can do a whole lot of things, right? There are a lot of levers we can pull. Traditionally, I think companies have only really looked at CSR as the place to really drive equity. And I think at Prudential, right, because we had such a rich history of really focused on racial equity in our grant making and our philanthropic strategy, when when i think companies met the kind of racial reckoning of 2020 i think a lot of teams like mine did some internal work to say okay what are we currently doing what is the opportunity in this moment And what we found was about 75% of all our grant making really met our criteria of addressing racial equity. We were investing in black and brown communities to remove barriers to opportunity. And we were also really tackling um, issues at a system level, really to look at solutions that help advance things using a racial equity lens. But what we saw as an opportunity for the company was to say how do you embed equity into your business strategy it's not enough to feel good about the csr investments that you're doing as a company but how do you really look more holistically about how we think about our talent practices how do we look at you know how we're supporting our employees so that they can thrive in corporate america which traditionally has not been a very positive Pathway for for people of color, and also how do we look at our business strategy and and really think about ways that our business model could help to advance equity, and that's not an easy pathway. But um, getting back to and you know the some of our partners, I think Aspen has been a real bridge to support us in that. This idea of bringing people together across sectors and really learning and understanding and having those insights on what are the opportunities from a policy level? You know, how do you evolve your business strategy? There's probably um, sticks. And we talked a lot about the accountability measures that corporations should have and should do. But there's also incentives. I mean, inside These organizations are lots of people who care deeply about these issues, but may not understand the opportunities that exist within their own spheres of influence or pathways to do that type of work. So we've been really leveraging our partners like Aspen to bring together our corporate leaders and engage them in these these touch points.
0: How do we actually measure the success though, right? There's on the one hand A company can say, well, we're doing all of these things. We have all of these initiatives. We've hired all these people of color. But what's the impact that we're actually making? What's the follow through that's required to actually feel and not just feel, but know that you
3: are driving results, that you're closing the racial wealth gap? We could answer this both from their own employees. And their own financial security as, you know, sort of the obligation of the employer um, is to have working experiences that give financial security. And, of course, in these cases, you guys actually have customers that you are delivering wealth products to and insurance (laughs) products to that could do it. I think at the end of the day, it's honestly like, what does their balance sheet look at like? I mean, it's a numbers game, right? We're building at Aspen FSP, we're building a new wealth agenda. We've been working on it for about a year. And that was some of the workshopping we were doing with um, Shanae's colleagues. And just so everyone knows, 101 Solutions for Building Wealth will be out in a couple of weeks. And then we'll have like a full agenda next year that really focuses in on what is the the cocktail, the interaction of different kinds of solutions but we want to hold companies, government, other kinds of leaders accountable in a way that's like we're thinking about global warming. Like what are the actual numbers changes and how do you look at the real balance sheet of Americans so that we're 10xing the wealth of BIPOC families and the lowest 50% of wealth holders in this country in a generation. Like that's sort of what and for employers, you know there's some employers like PayPal, there's this is like documented and see talk about talking about what you're doing. PayPal has been sharing this about how they're trying to build the financial security of their workers. And so they've done almost an internal financial diaries, right? Like, how do we, what are the surveys? What are the focus groups? How do we first know? I think we were talking about this in the last panel. What are actually your needs, not my assumed needs? How does that relate to our compensation package, not just the income, but including the benefits? How do we adjust and use the levers we have as a company and then how do we keep going back to measure and one of their measurements they are looking at what is the monthly positive cash flow of our employees and how does that increase over time? Because that is like the first step of having financial stability to be able to even amass the kind of savings you need for any kind of investment or asset purchase. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's quite doable. I mean, at a country scale, we'd have to think more about like what our surveys of the Federal Reserve does and, you know, other things. But as an employer, you could be doing this and really, You have so much leverage and movement points to say, okay, and if we increase shareholder, you know, we increase shares of stock to our employees, what does that do to our numbers game? If we restructure our medical insurance so higher income folks pay more and our lower paid employees pay less, what does that do to their positive cash flow? I don't know why I'm moving like a robot. Apologies. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's all kinds of ways to. Play around with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one big one. What if instead of saying we we're going to pay back your student loan debt after you took the courses? Um, I mean, I'm sorry. We'll pay for you to take courses now. Except that I actually had to go to school to get my master's or my you know my regular bachelor's so that I could even get this job. But now you won't pay for the you know education I already did, like, that's a big scam in benefits. You should be paying back for what people did to get the job you have now. But at any rate, how does that adjust my monthly cash flow? What does that make my portfolio look like? And that's how employers should be looking at what they're doing for their employees.
0: You know, we talked in the previous panel about health care, and how the cost of that can be a make or break. Uh, it's the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. Um, and you had an interesting, some some interesting research out of the Aspen Institute that we we spoke about in our pre-interview that I'd love to share with everybody and also get the perspectives of Fidelity and Prudential on this. You know, speaking of companies and the leverage that they have. Okay, so imagine this: companies just said, "You know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna be the conduits of healthcare." What would that actually look like? I mean, you're working on this. You've created some some scenarios. I'd love for you to share and explain this way better than I am. What is the reality of actually this taking shape?
3: You know, we need to just put this all on the table right and we think that employers um, there's a set of things that if you're a W2 we think employers should be offering you and then some people don't get them because of occupational segregation where they don't get you know benefits at all or some people don't get them because they're not W2 full-time employees or whatever like most of our country doesn't get them frankly is what we all need to know but we all actually need them so what some of the work we're doing under our benefits 21 portfolio which is about modernizing benefits is saying what are actually, The core benefits, the bundle a worker needs to achieve real financial security. What is that interaction? What should be public? And meaning government, not just what we think of as like public benefits for poor people. By the way, we all get benefits from the government, whether or not we call them that. What should be offered by the government because that's more efficient, that's more equitable, that's more fair? And what should be through the private sector? Or should the private sector just be subsidizing the government because the government is still a better deliverer of it? Or there's third party independent organizations that can be the deliverer of it. But we're all just like protecting a system that doesn't work because we're worried about losing the one thing we have, even though other people don't. But that's what we're trying to disrupt a little bit and shake up in everyone's mind.
2: I just would echo what I said earlier is that, one, everyone's struggling with this, right? So, you know, regardless of where you sit or what sector you represent – we're all trying to figure out what's best and and what's going to allow us to be able to fulfill and realize our missions in the most effective way so creating safe spaces right to grapple with this with others is going to be the pathway to new solutions yes. and you know, no sector is going to figure it out alone. So it's going to be engaging in dialogue without the defense or the need to be protective of sharing information or insights that will lead to the, the next best iteration of these solutions. And given the environment that we're in and, you know, so much is changing about the world of work, this is the time to have that dialogue. Thank you.
0: Okay. So before we wrap, I'd love to finish with some uh, anecdotes, uh, both from Fidelity and Prudential regarding business and employee resource groups. Okay. So how has that actually worked in reality? what are the pros and cons? Any advice for the audience? Um, I think this is uh, something that is like low hanging fruit. All organizations can do this. Jamal, you want to go first?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we have pretty extensive um, affinity groups or ERG groups at, at Fidelity. Um, I think the, the positives are you're bringing a network of people together to talk about their community, right? And you create that safe space and environment to talk about issues that you may be facing within your own organization. But what we also find is that they're a great way to poll for what the community needs, Right, So it's a great um, voice for the community, what's happening outside of our offices or what's happening in a certain geographical area around the country. So we often go to them to test ideas. So maybe we might have a a new marketing spot or maybe we want to talk about a new life event. Well, that's a great group of people to go to before you even go to your customer. Uh, And so they've proven to be extremely valuable and in some cases invaluable for us at Fidelity.
2: So, we too have business resource groups, that's what we call them, and Prudential established some of the earliest BRGs um, about 25, 30 years ago. So, um, we've had a long legacy and history of um, having platforms for employee voice, and I think that was invaluable, particularly in 2020. Interestingly enough, I found myself in a dual role. Um, I was co-leading the Black Leadership Forum Um, at Prudential um, when everything was kind of unfolding as it related to the pandemic and just, you know, there's this national discussions around um, racial equity um, while also, you know, part of inclusive solutions and driving social responsibility and found that, you know, employee voice was powerful to set the tone. And the expectations, and to really serve as a critical friend um, to the company, to challenge Prudential to do more. Um, in the aftermath of George Floyd, um, the first group, um, you know, maybe three or four days after you know us witnessing this horror, um, that spoke formally about this was the Black Leadership Forum. Um, we basically informed senior leadership that we were doing a town hall. They were welcome to come and put together an agenda that really lifted up black employee voice. And we didn't know what to expect. We really wanted to focus on the black employees and meeting their needs. Um, And what occurred was 4,000 employees dialed into that. Um, Our CEO and the entire senior leadership team participated in that. And what resulted was you know, a mandate, an an idea that, you know, every senior leader wanted to have these conversations throughout the organization. That led to 125 meetings over the course of eight weeks. Um, That really involved 7,000 employees, all talking about what they expected, what was needed, and ultimately led to the company crafting um, the racial equity commitments that we see as a long-range goal um, to allow the company to truly embed equity into our business strategy, um, but BLF didn't stop with that. You know, we also, um, I think, strategically timed follow-up town halls. Um, probably, I think in 2020, it was really every every of other month, where we said, okay, we're going to use our platform to talk about how the company is thinking about these commitments. And that became an informal accountability measure, right? Because if you were a senior leader, if you were grappling with this, if you were mulling it over, but you knew you had to have participate in the town hall, all of a sudden things got done internally um, to say, okay, we're keeping you updated. This is how we're making progress. So I think employee voice is powerful for all the reasons um, that were stated, but also that you know employee voice can be a critical friend in an accountability measure just to hold the company accountable to staying focused, particularly when the work gets hard. Thank you.
0: So, what I've learned so far and so much... The importance of partnerships. One is very critical. The company can't solve all of it on its own. Uh, reaching out to organizations in the community, locally, abroad. Knowing your customer and not assuming you know what she needs, but actually asking her and knowing really the, the, you know, the makeup of her entire financial life and disruption. Really, assuming that, you know, all bets are off. Like. Let's put everything on the table. Let's go to ground zero. Let's talk about where we are. What is actually what it actually means to be a worker today in this country, financially, socially, all of it, and reimagine what it would mean to have access to things like pay and insurance and benefits. So, thank you very much, Jamal, Joanna, and Shanae. Thank you so much for and just all your honesty and your transparency and sharing all these great anecdotes. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to my panelists, Jamal Stockton from Fidelity Investments, Shanae Harris, Head of Social Responsibility with Prudential Financial, and Joanna Smith Romani, Managing Director at the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. To learn more about Of Color, you can one, check out my interview with its founder, Yami Rose, right here on So Money. I've got that link right here in our show notes. You can also go to OfColor.com. Of Color is doing some incredible work creating solutions for companies that want to give their employees access to financial tools, literacy, and support to lift their financial lives and close wealth gaps within their organization. All right. Stay tuned for Friday's episode of Ask Farnoosh, a fresh episode with your money questions. And I'm going to have a special co-host on Friday, Bola Sukunbi. She's the founder of Clever Girl Finance, and she has a new book out called Choosing to Prosper. Until then, I hope your day is so money.